everyone and welcome to Intertech's Ethical Sourcing Forum podcast titled Improving Sourcing Standards Within the UK Apparel Sector. These ESF events are a feature of Intertech's Business Assurance and Supply Chain Division with a focus on collaboratively discussing key social and sustainability subjects that impact our customers, businesses and, and supply chain stakeholders. My name is Justin Bessie. And I'm the Director of Strategic Partnerships based in our London head office working within our Business Assurance Division. This is actually the second of three autumn podcasts focusing on the UK apparel sector and the labour and human rights risks that exist within it. These three podcasts will discuss several different perspectives of this subject with input from expert guest speakers and stakeholder representatives. This second podcast in the series is called Is Enforcement the Panacea for Exploitation of UK Apparel Workers? And we'll discuss by our expert guest speakers some of the key subjects relating to worker exploitation in the UK apparel sector. The final podcast in the series is called Can a UK Sourcing Hub Be Competitive, Resilient and Put Worker Central? More information on that final podcast will follow, so please do keep an eye out for that one. So let's get started with some other introductions. Uh, my Intertech colleague here today with me is Catherine. So Catherine, can I ask you to introduce yourself and also introduce our distinguished speakers today? Thank you. Of course. Thanks, Justin. And welcome, everyone, whatever time of the day it is with you when you're listening. I am Catherine Beer, um, our Director of Supply Chain Assurance Services with Intertech and also based in our London head office. And today I am delighted to introduce two fantastic speakers with some great thoughts for us. In our preparation session, it was already a good healthy debate, so really looking forward to today. I'll briefly introduce each and then I'll pass over to them to let them give us a brief explanation about each of their companies, as I'm sure they'll do a much better job of that than I will. So kicking us off, I'm going to start off introducing Adam. Adam, who is the CEO of UKFT and joined the industry about 25 years ago and has worked across a wide number of trade bodies, representing all aspects of the fashion and textile supply chain. Adam has links to every part of the industry from design, fabric and component suppliers through to wholesalers, brands, manufacturers and retail. So Adam will tell us a little bit more about his association in a second. Next, we're joined by Peter McAllister, who is the executive director of the ETI, the Ethical Trading Initiative, which I'm sure all of us have heard of. Through over 25 years in roles spanning development, emergency relief and CSR, Peter has worked closely with small producers in both Asia and Africa, as well as with large companies in mining, energy, commodities, training and high profile consumer goods brands. Peter has played a leading role in organisations over 15 years, combining a strong appreciation of business imperatives with creating development outcomes through his work in the ETI. Adam, can you tell us a little bit more about UKFT, please? Indeed, and thank you very much for inviting me uh, on today's seminar. Um, UKFT, the UK Fashion and Textile Association, is the leading organisation in the UK. Um, we represent about two and a half thousand businesses 
uh, and we represent them across the entire supply chain. So we're starting with the spinners, weavers, knitters and garment manufacturers here in the UK, of which there's still about 120,000 people working in the UK in the manufacturing sector, all the way through to designer brands that you see on catwalks, wholesale companies, um, the retail industry, uh, and even through into industrial laundering and dry cleaning. And we support them in a whole variety of ways. We are the lobbying organization for the industry. We help support manufacturing in the UK. We look after skills and exports and provide business support to all of those organizations. Great, thank you, Adam. And Peter, please, a little bit more about the Ethical Trading Initiative. Thank you very much for the uh, opportunity to, to contribute. Um, Ethical Trading Initiative has been around about 20 something years, probably well known for our base code, which is one of the widest used uh, compliance standards globally. Um, we bring together companies, trade unions and NGOs basically to try and understand and tackle issues in supply chains that relate to standards around workers. Um, we work directly with those those companies on a one to one basis to help them build strategies and programs. We look at new emerging issues. We have various practical projects in factories and in farms around the world. So have a portfolio that covers food, a number of general general merchandise areas and, of course, fashion and textiles. Great. Thanks, Peter. Justin, back over to you. Excellent. Thank you, um, everyone. So um, back to today's podcast. So purchasing practices, increasing costs and, and community culture all actually add to a UK apparel supply chain that struggles to meet legislation, human rights and safety standards demanded upon it. But are these just excuses or is the UK apparel sector really broken and in places will continue in failing to meet the most basic of requirements? There are clearly broken elements or parts of the UK apparel sector that are impacting people, reputation and complicity with illegal activity. Changes in business culture and behaviour within the apparel sector is critical if improvements are to be made. So let's kick off with some questions to, to the panel. Um, Peter and Alan, um, I'll start with my first question. Um, it's clear that within the apparel sector in the UK, there are a small minority of fashion apparel businesses that have complete disregard to labour laws and, and the well-being of, of, of workers and indeed people. But is this really a fashion industry driven issue or a case of opportun opportunistic exploitation by individuals against their own communities in historic te te textiles based cities? Can I hand over to maybe to Peter first? Thank you, Justin. Um, I, I guess CTI is well positioned to say, look, this isn't just a fashion and textile sector. Sadly, we have seen over decades the willingness of some, and it is always some, to exploit opportunities, whether that's in food or in the service industry. And of course, we're talking in this case about textiles. And in an environment where money can be made by cutting corners or by operating deep in the supply chain or by exploiting the ignorance and the fear of people, unfortunately, there are opportunities that some will take to make money out of those situations. It's clearly a, a situation that reflects poorly on any sector and poorly on a country if we allow that to continue. Um, sadly, these things do happen from time to time and a robust response is needed. It's particularly prevalent in areas where costs are pushed down and you're often at the margins where you've got low value, low skilled jobs, you've got price pressure, you've got an imbalance of power between the ultimate buyer and the producer and particularly 
workers. It's aggravated when workers don't have a trade union to fall back on or don't feel that they can speak up or don't have a recourse to some form of complaint and justice. So is it endemic? I don't think it should be, but there's too many examples where people can exploit these sort of spaces to take uh, advantage of people and make money out of it. Mm. Okay, thanks, Peter. And, and I mean, Alan, over to you. I mean, the, the same question, and Peter's touched on obviously uh, vulnerable workers and exploitation with with within certain cities and, and communities. And what's been your experience or, or view on that? Well, you know, echoing an awful lot of what Peter said, and I think it's you know it's very important to stress that this is a very very small minority of the, of the UK manufacturing industry um, that, that operate under these illegal ways. And it, again, it's very important to stress that they are operating illegally. There are rules and regulations and laws, and um, people are breaking them, and they should be punished accordingly. Um, and you know, there should be no excuses. And I'm sure we'll get onto this later about what the enforcement agencies can do. But you know, Peter's very is right. This is an industry, particularly in fast fashion, where where the margins are incredibly tight, um, where retailers are driving very hard bargains, um, and where we as consumers are looking for incredibly cheap uh, products. But that is absolutely no excuse for illegal working practices. You know, we can I can take you. I'm I'm talking to you from from London. I can take you to a factory that's less than a mile away from me, operating in the centre of London where they're paying people 17, 18 pounds an hour, um, producing goods for fast fashion retailers. It is perfectly possible to do that ethically and sustainably here in the UK. And, and we need to be making more of the good people. We need to be making example of those that break the law, but we also need to be concentrating on all of those people that are producing fantastic products, whether it's high end or for the fast fashion industry here in the UK. Okay, so yeah, thank, thank you, um, Adam, for that first question. I think mean, you bring up two good points there, which is, you know, exploitation is going on, but there are also examples where it's actually possible to produce um, um, scalable, affordable um, products without that exploitation. So, so I think, Catherine, that leads nice on to, to I know, the second yeah. question you've got around sort of the enforcement piece. No, and it's 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 a really good point because when I think about licensing and enforcement, or or many of us, I'm sure, I guess in our minds, uh, you know, we we do think more about activities required for sectors and products where there could be high risks to individuals and society, and need to be controlled. And traditionally, that wouldn't necessarily have been, you know, in the UK, certainly the fashion side. So, you know, we're thinking maybe more about the tobacco and alcohol industries, for example, when we think about enforcement. So I guess for me, the question I want to ask is, what does it really say about the UK apparel manufacturing sector if enforcement is needed for production of, you know, T-shirts and dresses? Is it really showcasing the UK as a country of innovation, investment and, and skills based jobs? I mean, Adam, maybe if we pick up with you first, what, what's your thoughts? Well, it, it's a very good point. I and mean, I think, you know, carrying on from my earlier comment, I mean, I can take you to numerous factories around the country um, where they invest heavily in innovation. I can take you to textile companies where they are producing textiles that change color that are used in the military to help with camouflaging. I can take you to factories that are making military, um, medical implants that, that help us 
um, survive things like heart attacks. You know, we are an incredibly innovative industry and we're an industry where currently there's something like 20,000 job vacancies in this sector. You know, under the current circumstances, it's an industry that's crying out for young people to come in, to be trained, to develop skills, to produce high value, very, very valued products. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we are having to see time and time and time again, I mean, you, you, you said about, you know, the length of time that Peter and I have been around. You know, this isn't a new story, unfortunately. It's yeah. been with us for an incredibly long time. The enforcement agencies have an, a very important role to play. I mean, the fact that, that we're asking the enforcement agencies to, to, to have a look at our industry isn't a sign of weakness, I don't think. You know, I mean, we have, we have the police force to, to, to impose laws across all parts of our lives. Um, we need the enforcement agencies to make examples of those that are breaking the law. We also need retailers to change the way that they incentivize their buyers. So it's not all about necessarily just the lowest price. We need manufacturers and retailers to develop long-term relationships so that manufacturers feel able to invest in skills, to invest in innovation, because they know the orders are coming. Unfortunately, it's, it's, it's more complex. Lots of issues are more complex than headlines. Um, and I think, you know, there's, there's lots of things that can be done. There's lots of ways that we can help to increase productivity. That could get pay rates up. If we can get pay rates up, then more people are going to be attracted into the industry. But mm -hmm. fundamentally, we all, you know, as consumers, as retailers, as brands, as manufacturers, and as the enforcement agencies, need to make sure that it's, you know, the time of words and headlines, surely now is the time that we really do need to be seen to have the enforcement agencies, and sorry to use this language, to go in and kick the doors in of these factories and arrest the factory owners and their support network. Not the workers that are being exploited, but those people that are benefiting by exploiting others. So it's the factory owners, it's the accountants, it's the lawyers that are helping them operate in these illegal ways. Mm. No, and I think you know the one the one line that you said there, which is is really sticking in my head again, is back to the point: how do we attract you know the the, the talented youth in Britain today to be interested in in still being there? Because you know, I, you know, I know we've had conversations around it's not necessarily about mass mass production coming back to the UK in terms of that, but the the really highly innovated. Uh, roles in which they can lead to on design etc and and how can we do that if it's got this this gray you know feeling over it as an industry that's underpaid underrepresented and has got these really severe challenges very good point um peter anything you want to add to on that um well again very good points made by adam and i i just want to echo something you said a couple of times look we tend to focus on the, the negatives but there's lots of positives and again i've been to factories working in Britain, paying decent wages, serving the sector so we know it can be done. And actually, I'm an industrial engineer by training. And sometimes, whether it's in the UK and other places, it's, this industry looks like a lazy industry because you can set up a line, you can start producing stuff and you can sell it. That's not what this country's, gonna, this country's future is going to be based on. If we can't look at innovation, creativity, using those design skills, using good technology, transparency and so forth, then we're sort of relegating ourselves to being in the second or third division. And clearly that can't be the future. 
for the country. But a couple of other things I wanted to to, to echo. Um, you know, this country runs by consent, so we don't highly regulate every single behaviour, and and generally we don't highly regulate business. Although maybe many businesses would disagree. But when that regulation or, or when that approach fails, and when some people are prepared to take advantage of that space, then I think that that's an argument for saying, well, maybe have we got that balance right? Um, a lot of this is coming up because the UK has taken a more progressive stance on modern slavery, has made a political commitment from the top to say, look, we want to eradicate this. And that's put a, a, a brighter light on some of these issues. But, but clearly, even that's not enough. And that's, I think, why we're seeing a call for a clear political signal from the top and then the support for agencies to conduct the work that they have a mandate to conduct with the proper resources and with the proper support. Uh, to do that. And I think it's that combination of identifying the good, encouraging the good, looking at the practices, but where people are breaking the law, then they should be held to account. That's the right mix of things. Yeah, good point, good point. And on breaking the law, I think that that, that comes into your next question, uh, Justin. Yeah, yeah, no, good, good points there. So I was just thinking there, I mean, there's nothing, I mean, you know, free enterprise, um, free market drivers, fundamentally there's nothing wrong with selling a product whether that's a 20 pound product or a 200 pound product you know or even driving around in a ferrari due to your business success there's nothing wrong with with that um but when the cost of that means that workers you know aren't even getting paid a legal wage or and even sometimes they're being paid money and then have to return some of the money the next week just to make the books look uh, good for the auditors. I mean, that's clearly unethical business and exploitation. We know that. So, you know, Peter, Adam, you know, if you you represent um, a lot of members in your organisations, you know, if you had a magic wand, you know, how would you want stakeholders to root out those individuals, as you said, Adam, there, and make sure effectively they can't close down and set up another business a few weeks later? Can that be done or, or, or do, do we need the government to step in just as they did, you know, in the food sector with the GLA, GLA many years ago? So maybe, uh, Peter, can you start with that one or any comments? Yeah, um, again, a good, a good question. ETI was very much involved in the establishment of the GLA in response to the terrible disaster in Morecambe Bay with cockle pickers from China who, who lost their lives. And again, it was one of those great areas where there wasn't a sufficient scrutiny and there wasn't uh, an oversight of the gang masters involved in that particular area. And again, it, it's, it's sad to think that that's necessary, but sometimes there is necessity for uh, law, policy and agencies to make sure that we see the behaviours that we need. There isn't a magic wand. And if you speak to anybody in that law enforcement area, modern slavery area, you have to be very much aware that people are willing to exploit. If they can't do it in sector A or with approach B, they will find a different way. So it's, a, it's, a, it's not a static battle, it's an ongoing battle. With parent textiles, which is a bit more static because you've got factories and you've got you know, infrastructure and so forth, we should be make, able to make a better effort. But at the moment, there isn't a clear political signal that the balance is wrong. So too often it's about we don't want to burden business and we don't want to spend too much money on enforcement. But at the same time, we then have got a rhetoric about attracting and creating great jobs for this country. Well, sometimes you need to get the balance of enforcement to create those good jobs and make sure, and Adam's talked already, that we can 
maximize those jobs which are about creativity and innovation and well-paid and, and well-paid opportunities rather than creating space for them to be uh, running the shadows and for exploitation to take place yeah yeah and and Adam, I mean, you know, again, you represent uh, many mem members in the uh, apparel fashion sector. And, you know, what are they saying to you with regards, you know, these, these unethical businesses and, and wanting your support to get a, a more competitive playing field out there? You know, so, so what feedback are you getting around that, that subject? I mean, exactly that, really. I mean, I think, you know, the vast majority of companies that I speak to, whether they're in the manufacturing sector or the design sector or retail, absolutely want these practices stamped out. Um, you know, it, whilst Peter's right, there is no magic wand. We have the regulatory, we have the legal frameworks that, you know, these things are illegal and what we need to do is make sure that the enforcement agencies have the resources to, to, to enforce the law. Um, you know, none of the um, companies that are our members want anything to do with this type of practice it brings down the industry it it, it gives the it tarnishes our reputation both here and abroad you know we we are a massive exporter um we don't want our exports to japan and korea and the eu to be tarnished by the fact that people might be concerned that the people that are making our clothes and our textiles might be being exploited it is doing nobody any favours. It's not doing the poor workers in these factories any favours at all. It's, you know, the only people it's benefiting is the business owners. Yeah. But we have to be fairly realistic about this, and this means we need to confront issues that people find uncomfortable. I think we have to address the fact that a lot of the exploitation that happens in the UK is based around um, ethnic groups, around religious groups, um, it's an uncomfortable thing to bring to everyone's attention, but I'm afraid it's true. It, you know, and that happens with different cultures and different ethnicities in different parts of the UK, and it also happens across the world. We need to address that part of it. So the regulatory approach to it needs to be sensitive to that, but not be inactive because of it. We also need to address the fact that, unfortunately, research has suggested that some workers and i stress some workers are complicit in the ongoing exploitation issue with regards to underpayment of national minimum wage of maintaining their less than 20 hours on the books in order to be able to access government benefits but actually working 40 hours there are you know i'm not in any way shape or form blaming the workforce but we have to address some of the uncomfortable issues that happen in this industry yeah yeah i think just i might jump in on that one go on please peter yeah so so adam again you, you've raised a, a good point and and i know this is not about demonizing those communities in fact many of the strengths of those communities that are the close-knit ties they have the strong family bonds and what have you but often that does create a barrier to engagement and it does create difficulties sometimes with language sometimes with knowledge of the law and sometimes those close ties are then exploited by some individuals and and we need to tread sensitively but we need to be willing to have those difficult conversations i guess the the, the other difficult conversation is we need not to be naive that that brands buying practices often don't operate in a true market in that there's no feedback loop saying you just can't produce that garment for that price 
because too often suppliers will take the order because it's about keeping the machines going and you work either at cost or below cost or you, you work longer hours to meet that order. So we've also got to talk about that sensitivity that while um, I don't think any brand sets out to exploit, often this downward pressure consistently and requirement for quick production ends up in creating situations that, that drive people right to the edge of, of sort of marginal profits or in fact not producing for cost. So that's, that's the other uncomfortable truth that we need to explore, I think. Absolutely. I mean, again, if I could just pick up on that point, I mean, there, there needs to be an element of, you know, we can't just place all this on the manufacturer. There needs to be an element of training so that, so that buyers and retailers and brands understand the impact of their of their buying decisions and, and practices. I mean, I've got all sorts of examples. You know, there was one major retailer who was who, who wanted to produce a range of uh, UK made denim and they approached um, a fantastic denim manufacturer and they asked this denim manufacturer based in the UK to produce jeans and the, and the price that they were willing to buy at was the same price that they were buying at from Bangladesh and that it just doesn't work you know we, we have a significantly higher wage infrastructure than they do in Bangladesh and so there's there's an element of retailers and buyers unconsciously driving bad practice. Mm -hmm. and, and you know something, I, I'm, I'm going to jump in now actually with, um, I'm going to swap and take a question Justin was going to do a bit later because I think it leads in quite nicely actually with, with what you've both just said. I mean, we, we've talked a lot about, um, sorry, within our industry and, and your industries, we've talked a lot um, to, to the, the brands and the retailers about the fact that it's often been said that fashion brands, some won't source from the UK due to these now known forced risks, labour risks, um, or that the costs in the UK, you know, it, it, it makes more sense to opt to source in, I don't know, Morocco, Turkey, China, etc. And, and obviously you've just kind of echoed a lot of the comments around um, it's not that there's necessarily some may make that decision because they believe they're equipped enough to know that these issues will exist. Others may make the decisions to stay because, as you said, there's lots of really good practices happening, but others then may be not so sure because they're not aware of what's going on in their supply chain. So I guess my question, which I'm keen to, to, to follow on with both of you, is if we had a transparent, traceable legal supply chain if, if we can even say that in the uk do you think brands would place orders again in the big apparel cities such as leicester manchester london do we think by by bringing that visibility and we got to a point where we were able to get on top of the legality and the enforcement of these changes so this is very futuristic do you think that would encourage more back uh, shall I pick up this one first? Um, I, mean, I think the simple answer to that is yes. Um, and I think, you know, I've talked to multitudes of, 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 of big retailers as well as um, smaller brands who just aren't willing to risk their reputation by placing orders um, with factories in the UK because they feel unable, that they're not convinced that the factory that they place their orders in will be the factory that ends up making their product. Um, so if we could get around if we could stamp out those illegal practices then absolutely we would see big retailers in particular coming back to the uk however i think it's also very important to to, to, to have a dose of, of cold hard reality here making the uk 
cannot be as cheap as making in some other um, supplying countries. Um, we used to employ back in the sort of 60s and 70s a million people making uh, fashion textiles here in the UK, and we're now down to about 120,000, but that figure's gone up uh, uh, recently. We're not going to go back to the days, I don't think, of mass manufacturing here in the UK. What we're fantastic at, and what we can do, is fast fashion top-ups, is high-value mm -hmm. products, there's that sort mm -hmm. of thing. So there's absolute opportunity for a growth in UK manufacturing here. But I don't think we'll ever get to the point where we're making absolutely 100% of everything that we consume here back in the UK. Brilliant, thanks. Peter, anything to add to that? Yeah, so when we did some work on Leicester, must be about four or so years ago now, a number of our members, who are quite big, quite responsible brands, in the end left Leicester because they couldn't get the standards that they wanted. So it wasn't the product offer and it wasn't even the pricing, but it was about the transparency and the standards. So I think that the simple answer is if you can get that level of the, the, the right standards and the level of transparency required, we've got the quality uh, and the product offer, as Adam's already talked to, and obviously the commercial side has to be right. But if you get those three together, then yes, clearly there's a future. And uh, we're looking at um, more online shopping, which is le leading to shorter time to market, smaller batches. You've got size specific issues. You've got variations on design. So there's lots of reasons why reshoring in design has a an opportunity and potential. Like Adam said, I don't think, you know, UK is ever going to compete with a Bangladesh or a China en masse, but there is a basis of a good quality thriving industry in the country if we can get these, if we can get the right mix here. Yeah, no, no, great. And and that's positive to hear. And, and you know, that's going to be positive, I guess, as well to potential workers etc so i guess justin then that that leads yeah. us back to now the question on well how do we get there with the workers for example yeah it does and you know uh, uh, you know 10 minutes ago we, we were talking a lot about um the, the, the workers and i think a common de denominator whether it's the uk or any other um export manufacturing uh, uh country in the world is the common denominator is um, vulnerable and exploited um workers you don't get exploited normally unless Less you're you're vulnerable, and I think you know a vulnerable worker that's that's desperate can be tempted into potentially breaking the law as well. Um, so you know, a question to to Peter here, because I know this is a, a you know a particular interest of of yours and the ETI, is you know how do we you know engage and reach out to those vulnerable workers and help them to to protect themselves? Is this something that, that the unions can and should be supporting with? Um, what, what's your views on that, Peter? Yeah, good question, Justin. Again, it, vulnerability is an interesting one. You wouldn't necessarily thought a, a degree-educated white male is vulnerable, but if that white male's a Latvian, if they've come over to a job that's been advertised to them in the UK picking, and then their passport's removed and their bank details are taken, they suddenly become very vulnerable. So it, 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 vulnerability is as much about the place and the context as it is about the person, which is why I think people are often surprised that, what do you mean vulnerable? That's somewhere else, isn't it? It's not in the UK. Yeah. 
people's situation can make them very vulnerable here for a range of reasons. I think I think there's a mix of, of uh, answers to this. And again, I, I'm not suggesting any of this is simple. Uh, there's work at community level to reach out to people to help them understand their rights and to help them get, give them confidence that they can speak to someone. There's definitely a role for trade unions and we're seeing trade unions re-engage a bit more with the sector in terms of trade unions understand basic things like good practice at factories, health and safety. They understand how to look out for the issues around modern slavery. And if there is a unionized workforce, a lot of that can be addressed as well as the day-to-day -day negotiations with managers over working practices and hours and wages. So that's part of the solution. The, the other part, which we've talked about a little bit, is government's intent here. It, it's, it's all very well to rail against uh, immigration and modern slavery, but at the end of that are individuals. And if we're not able to convince those individuals that the state is largely there to protect them, to enforce the law and give them a safe place to work, then you create very mixed signals around do people step into that into that you know, daylight and start to complain or start to raise their voice. So a number of things I think have to happen. That community support and outreach, allowing unions to do the role that they play. And again, a very clear signal from government that we're after the people who are exploiting and not those who have been exploited. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, with the huge increase of, of migration of, of people around the world that we're seeing in the last uh, 15 years, this isn't going away. You know, we continue to see people wanting to migrate for various reasons, and and, and that leads, like you say, it doesn't matter what your 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 education level is. You can still be exploited if you're in an environment where, where you have a lack of of understanding of of cultural and local laws, etc. So, so yes, in, um, indeed. Um, so. Yeah, just handing over, Catherine, I know you've got um, another question for, for, for Adam, so I'll hand over to you. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Justin. I think, Adam, um, you know, maybe a nice way to, uh, to think about closing this is, especially I'm thinking of yourself, though, of course, Peter, feel free to jump in if, if you have anything to add. Adam, what would be your advice to your members on how to engage and develop good business relationships with the large buyers to ensure competitive, sustainable, and non-exploitative supply chains? It's a very good question. I mean, I think we're asked all the time by emerging brands, by, by sort of um, mid-sized companies, not necessarily by the big retailers, about where do they find UK manufacturers and how to work with them. With regards to where to find them, there's, there's lots of resources out there. UKFT's got a free um, to use website called Let's Make It Here, which lists about three, 400 UK-based manufacturers. With regards to how you work with UK manufacturing, the, you know, the key benefit of, of working with a UK manufacturer is that they are on, the, on your doorstep. You know, whether you're working with a manufacturer in, in Scotland or Leicester or London, in, in global terms, they're on your doorstep. And the thing to do is to get to know that manufacturer. Understand what your business is. Understand how you want your garments made. Understand the pricing structure. Understand about garment tech. You need to understand as a business what the information is that you need to give to a manufacturer. If you come to a manufacturer with a real proposition, with a proper pricing structure, and you communicate with that manufacturer about the long-term plans for your brand, the long-term plans for your business, you will develop a good relationship with those manufacturers. And if the you know, if a manufacturer won't let you in their front door of their factory, don't work with them. 
Um, they might not let you in because they're working with a number of high-end brands and they don't want to see who you're working with, but if they won't let you in in any way, shape or form, then do not work with those manufacturers. Most of the manufacturers that we work with, that we know about, welcome people. They take students around their factories. They, they'll take journalists around their factories. They'll take MPs and ministers around their factories. They've got nothing to hide and in fact, they've got an awful lot to show off about. Again, I can take you to a factory that's three miles away from here that is working with some of the most high-end brands in the world that are making dresses here in London that retail for 20,000 pounds. That's how good our manufacturers are. We get brands from France. We get brands from Italy and from the US coming to the UK to access the incredible craftsmanship of our manufacturers. So there is a long-term future there, but it's about building those relationships. It's about the buyers understanding about their pricing point. It's about mm -hmm. the manufacturers working with the buyers to see where they're developing their business. So it's all about communication, really. Mm -hmm. And understanding the true cost of <laughs> that end output, I guess, as well. Peter, did you yeah. have any um, you know, comments you wanted to add to on that? Yeah, it's just a reflection um, that came actually from one from one of our members and uh, someone who's worked in the in the CSR team for many years and previously run factories in the UK. And he said that a lot of the young buyers now are incredibly creative, incredibly dynamic in the UK, but actually have never visited a factory. And of course, because many of those factories are now overseas, that's a much more difficult prospect. So they don't generally have an understanding of the things that Adam was talking about. So, you know, how does a factory work? How does how do you create pressure? What does a last minute change in a in a fitting or a button shape? How what's, how's the impact of that down the supply chain? And we've run a number of sessions with with young buyers um, just to give them a basic awareness, and they're interested. These are young, dynamic, you know, millennial folk who are interested in these things, but often they're not as um, in integrated into the manufacturing side of things as they might have been you know, 30, 40 years ago when manufacturing was down the road. So there is an opportunity to connect the dots on this and, and help the, the good, creative, innovative designers also make decisions that that they understand how, or how they understand the impact of their decisions down through the supply chain. You know, that's a fantastic um, observation because, you know, what a, what certainly the current pandemic has has shown us is that many companies were already looking at better ways that they, you know, did assessments with with factories, the way that they um, did, you know, buying trips, etc., and looking at more ways to reduce their carbon footprints and and do things remotely. And now, what the current pandemic has done is really fast forwarded that for a lot of people. So. Uh, it, it, you know, it is a really good point because things will change significantly. I mean, the amount of remote audits that Intertech does, for example, now has, has significantly increased. And that's just one reflection of um, not just will the audit houses maybe do things more remotely in the inspection houses, but but as the, the actual buyers and the actual brands themselves. So then thinking about those, as you said, Peter, that maybe have not had that connectivity yet to understand how it really works on, on the factory floor, where where is that gap going to be filled with giving that knowledge? I think that's a really, really interesting um, closing comment. Thanks for that observation. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yes, indeed, I was going to add on to that. You know, uh, um, if you go around to to schools and colleges these days, um, you know, they're children's awareness of, of, of human rights and sustainability is so much more than we had when we were their age and, and they're going to be the CEOs of, of tomorrow. So, um, you know, um, 
you know, that's going to create a lot of change. Their mindset is very different. But uh, wow, this, I can't believe the time's gone very quickly. We could talk about these subjects all day. Um, but I think we're out of time, which I said is a shame. I think we've just started getting to some of those meaty subjects there. But that does leave us nicely positioned for the final podcast in this series um, called Can a UK Sourcing Hub Be Competitive, Resilient and Put Workers Central? Again, we really do have some great special guest speakers for that one. Um, so look, once again, um, we'd really like to thank the panel, Peter, Adam, look, thanks so much for your, your time today and your input. It's been brilliant. And both the ETI and the UKFT uh, websites, the links to them will be provided with this podcast. So everyone listening, you'll be able to have um, a look around and listen to what else those organizations are doing with their members. Um, so look, finally, just thank you everyone for tuning in and we look forward to speaking to you again on the next and final podcast in this series. Um, thank you again. Goodbye. Thank you, Justin. Thank you.